back, folks, to episode 19 of the Running Man Self-Regulation Skills and Self-Improvement Project podcast with your host, me, Dr. Armando Dominguez, Ph.D. in Health Psychology, licensed professional counselor, and also an adjunct professor at a local community college. What we're going to be discussing today are going to be some really useful tools that stem from a book called The Book of Five Rings, written in the 15th century, 1644, is whenever this was written, the last day in the life of Miyamoto Musashi. And he's famous amongst martial artists globally for his book, The Book of Five Rings, and there was another that he'd written. But he was also known as an artist. He was an amazing painter, but also an artisan and he is one that uh, also would cast in bronze. So he was a rather talented person. And probably didn't really care about swordsmanship in particular, but more so just trying to stay in contact with his most spiritual self. And he mentions following an inner light. So meditation was a big practice for him when he was around. But he had also won 65 duels to the death. And... The largest number of those were won in his latter years, past age 40, I believe, and he was using wooden sticks, boken, wooden swords, shaped uh, pieces of wood that looked like swords versus live swords. And he lived in very, very difficult times during the samurai era in Japan. And uh, during the times that he lived, he actually survived three wars, two of which were on the losing side, and uh, this is where this becomes useful to us. Uh, according to the expectations culturally in Japan, uh, by one's honor, one's family honor, uh, would be preserved if you did something that was shameful or something that would bring uh, a bad light or dishonor upon the name of a family. Saving face was very important. And one's image, self-image, and we'll call this in our common term ego and our social self and our standing in the community was more important than the life of the individual. I'm putting a high emphasis on this because it's a distortion. And he knew this, but he didn't participate in that. Musashi warned against blood oaths. When somebody took an oath to protect a samurai, uh, code, Bushido, the way of the warrior, to live by that, and also to live as a vassal for nobility that by and large were not living by the highest precepts and often were into some pretty crooked things, and if they gave you the order, you had to follow the order faultlessly, and if you failed, you had to succumb to the punishment of which that would be committing seppuku, and that is what people call Harry Karavich and actually Harakiri, or cutting the center. And seppuku is the honorable and probably nicer way of saying that, but basically uh, committing suicide by disembowelment. And uh, you had to do it by your own hand and not bring dishonor upon yourself by screaming out in the process, which sounds like a really hard deal to me. But the important thing is, is that Musashi, even in those times, very unpopular in the sense that he was a survivor and he ran 
and he hid for several years whenever he was being hunted down like a dog, so to speak. Not that one should do that to dogs, but back then, considering the situation, it makes sense. And you get the picture, but he warned against taking blood oaths, which means that, you know, there's folly in that. There, that, that that's a falsehood, that one's life should be forfeited for an idea, an ideal, or dying for a principle. And I will coin a term here, a, a statement that I use whenever I teach my students. Often we get tied up in those things that we believe, and they tell me that they're doing this because of the principle. We're doing that because of principle, we're living by a principle, which there are principles that we have to realize that are very useful to us, and they are overlays onto the thing that we call life, or maybe the actions that we take that actually elevate us and help us out. And when we take the principle away, at the very least, our life doesn't change. It doesn't get worse because we don't use it. But principles should add value and hopefully bring about betterment as a result of using them. Now, what I actually ask my students to think about is, well, if there is nobody there, what happens to the principle? When the inversion occurs, like this idea of honor, and uh, the inversion means that the principle is higher than the individual that is living it or exacting the principle or using it in their life, then there's something wrong with that. That means the idea is more important than the person, but what happens if there is no person to think that idea or exact that principle? As far as I'm concerned, it doesn't exist if there's not a person there to think about it or try to use it or do it. So therefore, the inversion wherever the life of the individual <laughs> is less important than the idea or the ideal. And it's just an idea, once again, that I'm proffering to give you some insight on some things moving forward. Now, Musashi, who is a brilliant man, he was brilliant in his capacity to survive, in the sense that he survived in a way that was counter what the modern culture at the time was, that said that if you did something dishonorable, you had to cut yourself down, truly in the physical sense. You had to kill yourself. Also, during this time, to maintain honor, if somebody had accidentally bumped into, let's say, a samurai for a certain noble house, and the samurai was allowed to cut a person down because they basically brought shame upon the family's name because they were clumsy and tripped on the road, didn't matter how old or how young, and they shouldn't have touched the vassal of the nobility. So they were allowed to cut them down, literally kill them with compassion, in quotes, and questioning. Hmm. So that was part of the deal. So what I'm trying to do is open your eyes to what it is that often, even today, we get wrong. We get incorrect when we invert. Whenever it is that we start fighting for a cause and not realizing that the cause is not as high in principle or outcome as we thought. Sometimes we get taken in by our emotions and we buy into something too fast. And later we change our minds or if we're lucky. Or maybe we're too embarrassed to back out because we're so invested and we don't want to have people look at us like, oh, that was dumb. Or why'd you do that? And make you feel bad. We're trying to preserve our ego even then, such that we might even suffer longer 
or even support something that we don't really believe in because we don't want to look the part of being less than, being substandard, or not aware enough to not do something like that. This is why I teach the self-regulatory skills, because often in social situations, the influence comes from people, their body language and their tonals, and they tend to guide us and influence us sometimes. Not that we're not in control of ourselves, but there are subtleties there that often have to do with belonging and being part of that we're wired for. We're wired to the group. As human beings, it doesn't matter how individualistic you think you might be. And we might even say and even hear and even a lot of TikTokers and YouTubers talk about being the strident individualist and I can do everything on my own. And I tell people, you know, you can live by yourself. You can work for yourself and make money. You don't have to interact with others. But technically, whenever you need to go and get a can of tuna, you know that you have to depend on the fact that somebody was out there catching that tuna can and that tuna and getting it to a store where you can go pick it up and espouse how individualistic you are. So in all practical purposes, we are dependent on each other. It's not quite the idea we like to espouse and we get kind of uh, strident in our way and uh, loudly spoken. And sometimes it takes somebody to point it out. And I'm pointing this sort of thing out because we tend to buy into those things and believe that they're more than what they actually are. So moving beyond this point, why is this important? Often the investment that we have in the things that we do comes from a measure of belief and how we entertain that in our mind. And we were discussing uh, a couple of episodes ago, I believe it was episode 15, we are discussing not only fear, but how fear affects the mind, and fear often comes along with a sense of or uh, an expectation or a predicted, expected fear of loss. The loss is what we fear often. Not that there aren't fears having to do with pain, but, you know, there's a fear of loss of homeostasis and having pain injected into the body or loss of health, these sorts of things. But generally speaking, a fear of loss is what is coupled with the baseline fear response and what we expected or predicted to be. Now, Musashi spoke about being a dispassionate observer throughout one's life. So whenever one has things that occur, one deals with it as its data. It doesn't mean that you don't enjoy or don't have fun. It doesn't mean that. Many people think that he may have lived a very gray existence. He lived during a very dark time. So enjoyment was a luxury of which he did participate in or else he wouldn't have been artistic or continued to meditate because there was some joy in it because he got really good at it. And the payoff was there. But it was also a very deep one in the sense that the things that he enjoyed doing were things that brought great benefit to him. A huge return on investment for the practice because his life depended on it. So self-regulatory skills are things that, like principles, we can add to our life and, and encourage a greater degree of quality of life. And that way we can have a greater quantity of quality things in our life that we enjoy and like. And we have better choices and have more power to make those choices, even when things get kind of difficult and dicey. And that's what we want. Part of that rises from physical resilience, being in better shape than you were yesterday. That does not necessarily mean going and doing 5Ks every weekend, but just taking a walk 
being able to recognize that when I stress, I can physically move. And that gives me the suggestion, my body, the suggestion in which my me or I or ego rides in this vehicle that says I can get away from consequence and circumstance. And also during that, I can listen to music or I, look, I can listen to music without any lyrics and just allow my mind to be still as I walk, to be mindful. And one of the things that I wanted to offer today is some of the exercises that I use that stem from the principles that Musashi taught, having to do with what he called making your everyday walk, your warrior's walk, and making your warrior's walk your everyday walk. That does not mean that you're in some odd mystical stance and that you walk in a certain way, kind of like in Monty Python's, uh, what is the, the Office of Funny Walks or whatever. Not anything like that, but rather that what we do should be natural and all should stem from the natural, whether it be a very serious combative thing or one in which we're just lifting a baby and pick them up and burping them and maybe feeding the dog or walking our dog outside. It shouldn't be anything unnatural, but rather where our awareness and our natural state is always one of awareness of environment and not one where we're so immersed that we're not aware of what's around us or for that matter, even unaware of what's going on inside of us. There's not an excess of attention outside or an excess of attention inside, but rather just a self-awareness generally. And uh, that's an important thing. So the next part, how do I make my warrior's walk, my everyday walk? One is not just whenever you're walking and exercise, but even throughout your day. When is it that I run into a situation or whenever I do something, an event or a task, that I might get irritated, I might get frustrated, and I take it as being bigger or worse than what it is because the way I see it in my mind, it becomes a, oh my, I can't believe this happened again. I really don't want to do this. We start having this self-talk, this narrative that becomes a little negative. And it's okay to acknowledge that maybe you don't like that, but whenever you're telling yourself, I am feeling this way, you've added identity. We spoke about the noun and the verb. I am experiencing feelings of upset, discomfort, irritability, or procrastination versus I am procrastinating or I'm mad at this or I don't like that. But rather recognizing and acknowledging versus holding on to it by identifying it as yours by saying, I feel this which means it's endogenous and existent within you, if you were to read the statement. So a good practice is to first catch yourself whenever you're thinking that way and know that it's not necessarily wrong, because once again, these are principles. You can add it to what you're doing and improve your life, or you cannot add it to what you're doing, and it's not going to change what you're doing. You can still stay, stay at the same level for the most part. If you want to improve, you add the principle. It may encourage growth in the sense of developing some skill and capacity that you may want that it might be useful to you, like not getting honked off at simple everyday tasks. And there are going to be days, yes, it's going to be irritating. But how much of that? That is not chronic pain. That is not chronic stress because you're in danger, but rather just merely your opinion of it. You're giving yourself the luxury of having an opinion, that's okay to have. Nothing wrong with opinions. But whenever they get in the way and exaggerate what it is that's going on, I'm no longer 
in a state of homeostatic balance. I now have more stress than I would have had had I not had an opinion versus just doing things. Whenever we get into what the media honey is right now about the injustice and correcting everything and, well, it's society, those things are very general terms, and we're making them personal when we espouse them. There's nothing wrong with supporting things that improve the quality of life for people generally. But whenever we get upset and that rides on our shoulders like an extra weight above and beyond what our individual life is, we got to remember change starts where? The person in the mirror, right here, one person at a time, before we can expect to create change outside of us. And becoming that, what we want to see out there, it's a practice. And practice means what? Repetition. And that also implies growth and skill over time by virtue of that repetition. An important point. Another idea I'd like to proffer today is being able to meditate in the midst of chaos. I have shared this with people sometimes and they've gotten kind of irritated when I would tell them and they start raising their voice trying to illustrate to me and convince me that the louder they got and the more intense they spoke, that they would let me know what real chaos is because my life is chaos. I can't control my kids. I can't control my husband. And it's this and it's that. Notice the tone of my voice. Voice got higher pitch. I started putting a little more emphasis, emotional emphasis on what I was saying. And it was no longer about, well, let me try this, but rather it triggered the, there's nothing they can change, uh, that can change rather what's going on in my life. And do you really think an exercise or a thought like this can really help? And notice I changed my voice to make it sound almost scoffing at what I said because that's what they did. But whenever I explained it to them what the situation was and pointed out the symptomology that they were not reporting, but that I was seeing as a sign in what I was hearing, and they were able to validate. And, and it wasn't done to shame or guilt, but rather to point out that you can keep doing what you're doing. But as a principle, this is useful. I use it. I know people that use it. I've taught it for many years, and people report good results. Now, they came in at a point wherever what they were describing was rather acute. It was happening frequently. There were bigger issues than merely just changing your mind. And it did have to do with family. and It had to do with other people that they could not control. So I tried to encourage them to work on self-control and self-efficacy, getting skilled and being able to do the things that they could do and not lose that sense of, I have no control of this, but rather be mindful of it and recognize that it's okay to have those feelings because there are some things that you can't control and that's okay. But rather there are also things during that time that you can. And often that has to do with our state of breathing our state of proximity, how close am I to this? Can I physically walk away and get away from it? So those subtleties within the awareness of a situation are very helpful. So situational awareness, very, very, very important. It's not only for the first responders because stress and trauma occur even in domestic home settings. And not that every argument or confrontation is traumatic, but it can get to that point. And that's just the flat facts on it. So the next part, what I'd like to point out is that whenever we speak about chaos, it's not about saying that everything is chaotic, but rather even whenever things are a little busy, trying to practice these little things, these details, 
that have to do with self-awareness. And then practice them whenever nothing's happening when it's easy. It's easiest to gain skill when things are low stakes. The idea is not to try to practice them when it's all literally at the highest level of intensity because that would be unrealistic to expect to gain any skill. And if you're already tired from resisting that, do you really think you'd have the energy to work and practice at gaining one little tool? I would say probably not. So that's an important thing as well. Next, we're going to touch upon a couple of things that are the bottom line. The bottom line is going to be, well, is it going to harm me? Yes, we're going back to death, destructiveness, and potential danger. Is there a risk to me? Is there a risk of harm? These are some important questions that we should ask moment to moment, and we do. Sometimes we don't say them that way, but we're looking at things and trying to say and determine whether or not environment is safe. But these things kind of give us an idea as to whether or not they're physically potentially dangerous to us. Now, here's the question. Because we've discussed ego in the past uh, episodes as well. And we've discussed the fact that ego is merely an idea and it's an artifact of my thinking of who it is that I consider myself. It doesn't exist, per se. As an object out there, we just kind of label ourselves, I, me. And therefore, my ego is that sense of self-awareness as I interact with, interact with the other people socially, as it is an artifact of socializing. It does not exist in and of itself outside of us. So here's the question I'm going to ask. We discussed Musashi and honor and people being cut down because they dishonored their family because they bumped into somebody and they had to either commit seppuku or they cut them down because they were cutting them down with compassion to save the family's name or honor. If we were to weigh honor and put it in a cup, how much would it weigh? Fact of the matter is it doesn't exist other than within our mind. And it doesn't mean that honor isn't because there are honorable ways of acting that have to do along the lines of common courtesy and acting and doing the right thing whenever things are difficult. Sometimes it has to do with bravery. It doesn't always have to do with death. But being honest and honorable tend to go hand in hand in the West, but the honor does not necessarily mean because somebody does something that is dishonorable that one is somehow less than could be considered a thinking error. But uh, it is often tied, even here in the West, with ego, self-image, acceptance. Sometimes people are shunned as a result of not having honor, being told that they're not honorable to a certain set of teachings or religion or a family's way of voting. You don't vote all Republican, you can't live here, we can no longer talk. As if those Republican candidates were going to come and eat dinner with you and shun you because you didn't vote for them. Big deal, right? For some it is. And I say that with a bit of disdain because I've, I've spoken to many folks that have had similar ideals. And they were a little difficult to deal with. I would say they were wound a little tight. But they were trying to live a good life as far as they could tell. But uh, there were some things lacking, of course. Now, honor often is tied with ego. And in the East, the term saving face has to do with the loss of face if you do wrong. Saving face means that you're social or public 
uh, image is not only safe, but it's appropriate and is worthy. So there's a valuation there. Not so different from what we do here when we discuss acceptance or even shunning somebody out of a clique or an in-group, for that matter. Junior high and high school folks know this rather well, and it can be a very painful process. And many people lose their lives as a result of how concrete and absolute they think those things are before they get out of high school and get to college or live a life where they get a job and realizes that nobody really gives a crap about that. And that only works in high school. It sets some people on their ear, other people laugh hysterically when they realize, but some never have the luxury or the opportunity to realize the fact that it is a fallacy that is being propagated within the school system and by expectations that are often are false. So that's a really important thing. What is ego and face? What is honor? I ask you to ask yourself. And if you know what those things are, is your honor more important than the very life that you live? Are the lives of your children and your loved ones less important than a principle of honor? It's more important that you put on a good show than you be good. There's a difference. You can put on a good show and look good, and still be a miserable rat of some sort versus somebody that lives well and is a good person. And one last tool that I'm going to add to this podcast is going to be about the mirror. And a mirror is known for its reflection. And in the Far East, whenever one practices the exercise of polishing the mirror, often that's associated with meditation and inward contemplative practice, but often it's meditation That has to do with silence and looking at oneself and shedding oneself of that ego so that one can experience the true self. And I know that sounds all mystical and esoteric. It's really not. But being able to practice it and keeping it in the sense uh, of my everyday life in practice and in hand while I do my moment to moment life, that's hard. And that's part of the meditation in chaos. So that way you learn how to do it whenever life is occurring, not just at the top of a mountain, away from all things. That's an impractical practice, which it serves its purpose. But living the lives that we do in the marketplace and in the cities as lowlanders that we are, uh, we have to be able to use this whenever we interact with people. That's how it becomes practical to us. But what about being the mirror? That does not necessarily mean copying and doing what other people do, even though we are wired to do that. And we also have mirror neurons that kind of fire and elicit responses where we tend to match behavior subconsciously, like somebody crossing arms or legs or acting or saying certain things. And we tend to respond or even match even tones that people are speaking in. That has to do with our survivability a long time ago when we were cave people and being able to encourage acceptance of self because... There are those that feel safer in numbers, and the fact of the matter is there is safety in numbers. And very few of the strident individualist cave people live very long because there was nobody there to cover their six. And you can be a good hunter, but you're not nearly as good as you are when you hunt with a group. And surviving in a group was always preferred. At least that's what the cave people say that I've known. (laughs) I'm one of them. So... Don't be the mirror in the sense of copying what people do, but sometimes being mirror 
means being reflective. And the most reflective thing you can do is by being dispassionate and observation. Talk to people and yes, smile and be genuine, but don't engage in the emotionality unnecessarily, especially if it starts getting ugly or out of control. Because then just think about this, the emotions that arise in them, once you start reflecting them, they're in you. And if you don't want to have that emotional roller coaster ride, you don't have to. You can choose to stay away from that. That also saves your energy, allows you to have more clarity to make better decisions. And it just gives you a general sense of well-being and allows you to stay into that level of homeostasis or close to that baseline longer, which means greater quality of life, greater quantity of quality things, which isn't a bad combination. I want to say thank you for spending time with me this evening. And uh, Musashi's teachings, they're timeless. And there's so much more within his book that I'll be sharing. But I wanted to dedicate this one to his tools that came out of his book, The Book of Five Rings, The Golden No Show, that stems back from 1644, and they still apply today. This man was a strategist. He was also a martial artist. He was an artist. But above all, he was a genuine, authentic human being. And that's a goal that I think is worthy. And I don't think you should do it because I say so. But I think that if you find that authenticity in life a worthwhile goal, then adventure well and walk well. Follow, like, and share. And I appreciate your time. And we'll see you on the next podcast. You take care.